Hello, and welcome to Pull Quotes. I'm Emily Pardo. And I'm Laura Howells. Around Remembrance Day, media coverage can follow a familiar pattern. TV reporters wear poppies, and every newscast has a Remembrance Day special. There are certain phrases we often hear repeated. Remember those who fought for our freedom, and the tens of thousands who paid the ultimate sacrifice in wars that stole generations. We remember major battles and tell stories of bloodshed and bravery. But what stories don't we remember? And what role should journalists play in passing on a national memory? This week, we talked to Ted Barris and Jamie Swift. They're both journalists and authors who've done a lot of research on Canada's war history, particularly the Battle of Vimy Ridge in World War I. Vimy is often called the moment when Canada was born, and our guests have different opinions on whether that narrative is true. Ted Barris is the author of Victory at Vimy, Canada Comes of Age, and Jamie Swift co-authored The Vimy Trap, or How We Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Great War. He wrote the book with Ian Mackay, and it challenges that coming-of-age narrative around Vimy. Jamie joined us on the phone from Kingston. Jamie, I want to start with you. What patterns do you notice about how journalists treat war commemoration? Well, I've noticed that Remembrance Day, the coverage has shifted. I mean, as a personal anecdote, I didn't watch TV or listen to the radio, at least with respect to news coverage when I was... uh, 13 years old, but I did accompany my father um, to the Cenotaph a couple of uh, November 11th occasions in, in Montreal, in Westmount. Uh, he was a combat officer in Normandy in uh, the Second World War with the Black Watch, and of course, back then, I betray my age if I say it was 1964, there were veterans of the First World War as, as well. The atmosphere, I found, was refreshingly free of some of the patriotic uh, or overly patriotic sense that we see a lot of in in coverage today. You mentioned, Laura, the obligatory poppy. Uh, I remember people, some people would wear the red poppy, but uh, now it's ubiquitous. I don't think anybody's allowed on TV as a newscaster or journalist without a red poppy. So if you tried not to wear the poppy, you might be... uh, excommunicated uh, as a form of apostasy. I personally like to wear the white poppy, uh, which has its own uh, long history. But so I think that there has been a change over the years in in the way uh, things have been covered. As as you mentioned in your introduction, Laura, there's a great emphasis on uh, uh, wars fought for freedom, for instance, which is, of course, a very, very controversial notion. Ted, do you agree with this idea that the way we're remembering our coverage around Remembrance Day has changed in terms of being more wrapped up in in the sense of patriotism? One of the things that I've been doing as a professor of journalism at Centennial uh, for 20 years now, this will be the first time I haven't done it in 20 years, was to have a remembrance event at the college. Yes, we had the trappings of a a color guard there from the local legion come in and present the colors. Uh, I invited buglers to do the last post in Reveille. But I wasn't particularly concerned that it was all happening at 11 o'clock. My interest was in, in having veterans of every shape and size and gender come and, and I interviewed them in front of the assembly so that the people in that audience 
in many cases, students who are from countries where the notion of remembrance is entirely foreign. And so having veterans there to explain their experiences, it's not about the patriotism, it's about the personal experience. And then the students say, aha, I get it. I understand who they are, what they did, and why you as Canadians, we as Canadians recognize that. So yes, it's changing, if not just in the classrooms and in the assemblies, certainly in the atmosphere around events where people do spend time exploring, not just standing there in silence and saluting flags and saying, I'm patriotic. Yeah, I, I think that's important. I think what you're saying is reflects a changing view of history and the way history is taught, the way stories are told and learned about uh, up until the past generation of historians. I'm not an historian, but I've you know worked with uh, Ian on a couple of books. And my understanding of the way that history and historiography has evolved is that there are much much more emphasis on social history and the voices of ordinary people. When I went to high school, it was very much a grand national narrative of uh, great men fighting great battles. And I think it's healthy that that, that has changed. So they have the voices of the... Uh, people who weren't making the decisions. So, so I, I think that's a, that's a good thing. I do think that uh, it's still important, even though it is important to hear personal stories and the importance of individual stories uh, notwithstanding, I think it is important when remembering war to remember not just the soldier's stories, but the story of why the war was fought in the first place and how it could have been avoided. And so I think these big picture stories are very, very important, and how our society, our country, has remembered war is equally important. So, for instance, I have a, a hat that I purchased from the Canadian Legion. It says Vimy on the front, and it says Birth of a Nation on the side. When I was doing work on this book, The Vimy Trap, a couple of hundred meters from where I'm sitting are the Queen's Archives, where the papers of Walter Allward uh, are deposited. Walter Allward, of course, was the designer and sculptor, sculptor of Canada's, arguably what is Canada's most important war memorial, the Vimy Memorial, sitting on the hill. And in those papers, uh, I find an observation about what Walter Allward thought when he was building this tremendous monument, and he described it as a sermon against the futility of war. So that kind of sentiment that uh, what you described it as a pacifistic sentiment, I think has tended to get lost in coverage of Canada's wars, particularly the recent Vimy anniversary. Uh, the Prime Minister himself used the birth of a nation idea in his speech. The burden they bore and the country they made. Because this, too, is why we're here. Why we remember. And oddly enough, Justin Trudeau used the notion of birth of a nation, Canada fighting at Vimy, in, in the French part of his speech, which was pretty ironic, given that French Canada overwhelmingly rejected the Great War. Uh, and... Uh, Indeed, the Battle of Vimy Ridge gave direct rise to the conscription crisis of 1917 and what was arguably the most bitterly fought election in Canadian history, and indeed it nearly broke the country apart. So I think that's part of the story of, of the Great War has, over the past, sort of faded 
into the mists of history in favor of a much uh, more valorous uh, narrative. To what extent do you think mainstream media coverage surrounding these wars is in line or or is repeating a kind of state narrative uh, about the country's participation in wartime? Well, I think I think it is definitely, particularly in the Harper years, but it started before then. I think the this birth of a nation notion that most sensible historians will reject out of hand, but it is repeated a lot. And the couple of November 11th events that I attended in Ottawa when doing work on this book, listened to the uh, faith bishops, rabbis, uh, ministers people of different faiths talking about about the war in their speeches, and they always tended to talk about freedom as the great glorious goal of Canada's wars, which of course is, I mean, I'd be, I'd be being polite if I said that was uh, contested terrain. Certainly, uh, the Great War had nothing to do with freedom. And that's, that is not a comment on, on Ted's observation about the importance of the social history of the Great War and of Canada's war, the the view from from the trenches, which I think is you know quintessentially important. Ted, I uh, I saw you shaking your head there as as Jamie was talking. Well, I'm I could be in in his analysis of of our writings about the First War, the Great War, could be accused of having fallen into the Vimy trap. I I suggest not because my sense from writing Victory at Vimy, Canada Comes of Age, the book. My book was published in 2007 on the 90th anniversary. Um, what I was interested in is, as you've alluded to earlier, Jamie, the social history, which means that I'm talking not necessarily to soldiers who got caught up in the uniform and the emblems and the patriotism and the victory, but who talked about their survival. And, and, and extraordinary as it was, they found something else in that campaign that smacks very much of nationhood. And I'll give you one or two examples. Gregory Clark, uh, who became one of this country's most extraordinary reporters and raconteurs, wrote for the Toronto Daily Star. He actually asked his editor if he could, in Toronto in 1916, if he could go down and cover as a story the enlistment that was going on at a local recruiting office in Toronto. And the, the editor was a little leery of sending him, fearing that he might sign up. Well, that's exactly what happened. And he ended up with the 4th Mounted Rifles at Vimy. But what Gregory Clark who's a journalist and recognizes the need for attempting to get things accurately and factually and as well as emotionally down on the page, writes on his first night. He writes in his memoirs, having achieved this victory, it wasn't about the victory. He said, it was my first full sense of nationhood. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's quite, that is a trope that is repeated, I think. I think, but if you look at Greg Clark's work before, I guess, he, he wrote his, his autobiography, our book contains half a chapter anyway on a remarkable series of photographs the Toronto Daily Star ran in 1934, and the, the photo spread over days was uh, put together by Greg Clark, who wrote the cut lines for the photographs, and Greg Clark's commentary in those cut lines, they're quite long cut lines, is very sardonic. Uh, it is very condemnatory of the war. A lot of the photos the star ran showed Canadian soldiers and German soldiers helping each other out. Very, very young men. Very young men. And this was the first time, to my understanding, that this kind of uh, war photography had been published in Canada in a mass circulation 
context. But we also looked at the letters to the editor that the Star ran, and it, later the Manitoba Free Press, Winnipeg Free Press, did the same thing uh, not, fall, not long after that. And the letters were overwhelmingly uh, opposed to the war. They were denouncing arms merchants. They were saying you should have shown the real the real view of the war. There were letters from men who were, I think there was a hospital for disabled veterans on Christie Street in, in Toronto, and there were letters from them, letters from Legion members. So I think what, what we're trying to get at in our book is to try to show how the commemoration and the memory of the war changed over the decades and was changed. The other, the other aspect of it is is that something happened in the chemistry of these people. I, I also quote in my book, Victory at Vimy, Harold Innes, who was with one of the batteries at uh, Vimy. And he writes of his experience as an intellectual, having been sort of rushed through uh, university to get his degree and off to war uh, at his own insistence. And he talks about the men with whom he served at the Somme. And he being an intellectual, he was with farmers and fishermen and laborers and other students and considered them a bunch of louts until he got to Vimy when suddenly the the action changed when they were all involved in preparing for a much more intricate assault, one more, one more difficult than they'd ever uh, uh, assumed before. And he writes contrastingly, he talks about that they weren't fighting for king and empire anymore, but quote, fighting for Canada. So it was a very different chemistry. What what essentially was happening there, I think you'll agree, Jamie, is that for the first time in the Great War, the Canadians at Vimy were suddenly together, not in somebody else's army. And so around the evening fires, they would sit and talk about each other's experiences at home and realize they had something in common. Yeah, they were, they were fighting the four divisions together for the first time, but they were definitely fighting in somebody else's army. It was the British Empire's army, yeah. So I think we should always remember that Canada's participation in the Great War was very much that of a colonial subaltern, not as an independent uh, outfit. And if you go to the War Museum, there's the usual emphasis on Canada gaining independence and signing the Treaty of Versailles. But indeed, Canada signed the Treaty of Versailles in an indented way under the British Empire and other countries that had, had nothing to do with World War I, the Great War signed the Treaty of Versailles. So, I, you know, I take your point about soldiers fighting and a sense of camaraderie. I think that's a very old story, that soldiers, when they come to the sharp end in, in combat, they're, they're not fighting for any you know, glorious uh, vision of freedom. They're not necessarily fighting even for their country. They're fighting for each other, for the classic sort of band of brothers, you know, all facing imminent mortal peril. And so there's, I can't imagine anything that would bring a group of people together more profoundly than that experience. Vimy is one of these stories that is oft discussed and and often repeated. But I mean, what gets glossed over and whose stories don't get told in the mainstream discourse around Remembrance Day? Well, I think, you know, for instance, one of the most common tropes that at Remembrance Day is the recitation of the poem In Flanders Fields uh, by John McRae. Many Canadian school children have memorized that poem. Uh, I think safe to say more in uh, English Canada than French Canada. And 
you know, people thinking of themselves as Canadians, let's always remember that it's English Canadians, and let's always remember that most of the soldiers, certainly in the first phase of the Great War, had not been born in Canada. They'd been born in, in the United, what was the United Kingdom in England. And McRae's poem, Take Up the Quarrel with the Foe, is definitely a call to arms. But what doesn't get told is what McRae said in a letter to his mother during the conscription election, conscription crisis that I mentioned earlier. And McRae, this great Canadian poet, hero, um, medical officer, said to his mother that he hoped he stabbed a French Canadian with his vote. Now that's something that is not often, you know, recounted as part of the legacy of the Great War in Canada. And I would argue it's a very important legacy of the Great War because there are no, there's not just one Canada. There are many Canadas. And certainly uh, in, in terms of the Great War, you had French Canada, English Canada. It's often been observed that many indigenous Canadians went off to fight the Great War and gave a really good account of themselves only to return to have their children consigned to residential schools and to find that they could not vote yet in Canada. So that's the kind of story, I think, that needs to be told in thinking about the history and remembering, remembering for what. Another of the stories that doesn't get told is the female Canada. Indeed. Um, one of the stories I recount again in my Vimy book is a, an incredible story about a woman named Grace McPherson who grew up in Vancouver, was among the first women in Vancouver to have a driver's license and own a car. And when the war breaks out, she offers her assistance and capabilities to the Red Cross, the Canadian Red Cross, the British Red Cross. She's refused by both. She saves enough money to get passage to England on her own. In the Canadian barracks in London, she's handing out pay chits to the enlisted men, and she's seeking an opportunity to press her case. Well, she gets it. Uh, suddenly she learns that um, Sir Sam Hughes, who's the Minister of Militia and War, is in London. She seeks an interview, goes finally to see him, goes up to the, the presidential suite of the Savoy Hotel in London, and she pleads her case. She says, Sir Sam, I've come to serve with my capability of driving. I want to be in the ambulance corps. And he says, under no circumstances will I allow a woman to go to the front. And she says, I've paid my own way. I want to serve. I want to do what I can. He refuses her again. She leaves, and as she's leaving, she says, Sir Sam, with your help or without it, I will serve. And, of course, shortly after that, by coincidence, Sam Hughes is dismissed because of, among other things. <laughs> he was nuts. He, well, partly that, but I, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. Legally, the he's... man and the butcher. That's right, thanks to Mr. Cook. Him. <laughs> but um, uh, Hughes uh, is found not only to be uh, perhaps not the best leader of, of, of that department, but also allegedly taking kickbacks in the sale of Ross rifles to the Canadian Army. He's removed. New militia, a Warren militia officer comes in or, or uh, comes to that portfolio. And uh, the tactics change. Uh, men are long, no longer going to drive the ambulances. Those seats become empty. Grace gets her wish. She serves. Her very first night is April the 9th, 1917. And she talks about the experience of driving the wounded from the station at Etaples to the general hospitals, and there are dozens of them. But what's most important, in, I found in, in her narrative or in her, in her um, memories of this, she was proud to be assisting the wounded, hoping uh, against hope that she could save them. But she was proudest of all of the Canada patch on her shoulder. The story of women in, in the Great War uh, is you know, often untold. One of the things that we end our book with is the story of the new French monument, not far from Vimy, 
which has the name of at least one Canadian woman that we could find on it. It was inaugurated two or three years ago. The uh, Chancellor of Germany and the President of France were there. And the interesting thing about it is that it's not all about France. It has the names of the French, the German, the Canadians, the Turks, the Australians, the Austrians, the Italians, whoever that were killed in that part of France. And there are, all those names are there together. So what's important about that is that it's this post-patriotic way of remembering. It's not all about Canada. This overemphasis on Canada is to, in my way of thinking, it's like a giant Canadian selfie. It's all about us. Well, I'm sorry, the Great War was not all about us. The Great War was one of the great tragedies of the 20th century, and I think it's most appropriately remembered as such and as a as a post patriot in a post patriotic and post nationalist way. So the sense I'm getting is that sort of the predominant stories, the predominant national narratives around the war are these sort of very militarized stories that focus very much on white English Canadian men. And and then, then these stories then get repeated by contemporary journalism and sort of our, our retelling of these stories in the media. I mean, do you think this points to a lack of diversity among, you know, military historians or in certain newsrooms? And and how would you like to see the mainstream media cover war remembrance? The reality of the first war, and to a certain extent the second war, was that, for example, African Canadians were removed to battalions essentially in the rear echelon uh, in many instances because of very much a racist situation that existed even in the military at that at that stage. And so we're not in the mainstream of, of the narrative that has become the, the telling and retelling of our war heroics. I use that in quotes. Jamie alluded to the indigenous um, Canadians whose experience has not been really discovered until Joseph Boyden and Three, Three Day Road, um, I think, general public consciousness. So it, it, it's Perhaps that we haven't been digging enough to find those stories, uh, that they are not there. So it's, it is our fault for not finding sufficient number of them to reflect the diversity of the country that, that was, not just what it is, but what it was. Mm-hmm. And there were you know, Japanese Canadians who, Very true. Yeah. who went off to fight in, for Canada in the Great War, and then come the Second World War, not only were they didn't get into the military, but they were interned, and I read a story, I forget the details, of some Japanese-Canadian veterans who went and threw his medal at, uh, at a recruiting officer when this you know, massive internment uh, was, was being undertaken, which gives a sense of the role of the Canadian state in, in all of this. I think um, there's lots of stories that need to be told. But why, why do you think there is this seeming reluctance to deviate from these kind of normative narratives around war and remembrance? Because we're looking for quick stories. Journalists want something right now. Yeah. We don't, we don't take the time that people such as Jamie and Ian and I hope I take to, to, to try to find the, <laughs> the alternative truth. Yeah. And there's nothing, you know, I think, Laura, there's nothing more um, compelling in a story than conflict, Right. What's the story? What novel doesn't contain some level of conflict? It's not all Mary Poppins, you know. So fundamental part of any, any story, any narrative is some sort of conflict. And what could be more conflictual than people going at each other, people fighting? What's more conflictual than that? Mass killing. Whoa, even more dramatic. So that makes those stories easy to tell. 
whereas the complexities of memory and commemoration and whose stories are included and whose get left out, that's a harder job. And as we know, journalists today are up against it. Newspapers are shrinking, television market is fragmented, etc., etc. So it is, to some extent, partly a result of the way the state has moved to portray or to commemorate. But it's also a function, since this is a look at, at journalism, it's a function of the how difficult it is to get at complexity. And to find sources. I mean, mm-hmm. you got to dig it. Eh? Well, yeah, and now there are so few of them. Ted and Jamie, we, we have to wrap up here in a second, um, but just really quickly, you, you talk about how, you know, it, it's difficult to to find these stories and, you know, shrinking newsrooms and, and you know, tight deadlines. It, it's hard to sort of... Dead it, veterans. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's, it takes effort and sometimes resources we don't have yeah. to, to seek out these alternative stories. But I know, Jamie, you've talked about how repeating these narratives can be quite dangerous, and, and often they're wrapped up in political ends as well. As we come up again into, into the month of November, what do you think journalists should keep in mind when we're covering war remembrance, but also you know national events like Canada 150, the, the War of 1812 Bicentennial? Well, I think firstly to remember that that memory, history, and commemoration are contested terrain, and there are many different stories, number one. Number two, that try to seek out different stories, the stories of Indigenous Canadians. As Ted mentioned, the African Canadians who were never allowed to go to the front and had to serve under white officers in labor battalions, those kinds of those kinds of things. Now, that, But that's difficult to do, because if you were to do that as a journalist, it on November 10th, uh, and put together something about that, there is a chance that you get a bit of significant blowback from, you know, I don't know whether people down at the Legion Hall or um, historians who want to hew to the conventional narrative, but I think it's it's worth doing, and I think it's part of the revisiting of Canadian history that's taken place over the past few years, the rewriting of history, because some people say, oh, well, you can't do that, you're rewriting history. So what the, the issue, of course, is that history is always being rewritten as new evidence is unearthed. That's the show this week. Pull Quotes is a production of the Ryerson Review of Journalism. And you can find more on the Ryerson Review's website, rrj.ca. And if you're listening, we'd like to hear from you. Send us an email at pollquotes at ryerson.ca. And follow the Ryerson Review of Journalism on Twitter at Ryerson Review. Pull Quotes is produced by Jacob McNair, Laura Howells, and me, Emily Pardo. Thanks to Angela Glover for all her technical assistance. Our executive producers are Sonia Fada and Stephen Trumper. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.